Good morning. And one of the conscious decisions we made some time ago, in fact, over the course of 42 years of ministry in terms of my tenure, is to have the children in the worship service. Now that makes for sometimes an interesting worship service, uh, depending on where you're sitting. Now God has graced us with an incredible facility, a large facility. And so some of the children can sit in the corners and, and only those in the corners really hear them well. But kids will be kids. Kids have good day mornings and sometimes kids have mornings that are a little less than good. And so um, please, uh, thank you for your, for your understanding. So when a child acts up a little bit, thank you parents for coming and get them because I, I think that's important. Thank you as you begin to train them. Uh, don't feel badly that you have to do so because kids will be kids. Sometimes we have to do that with our adults. <laughs> but we can't carry them out, they have to walk. And, um, and if you have kids that behave most of the time, don't judge kids who sometimes have a moment uh, here in worship service or some other place uh, within the context of the ministry. You know, some of our most uh, interesting children, our most rambunctious children are now pastors. <laughs> and sometimes they were rather rambunctious into early adulthood and God retrieved them because uh, you trend up a child in the way they should go and when they grow old, they will not depart from the ways in which they are taught. And we trust in that. And so we do have pastors that were pretty uh, interesting children and teenagers. And um, I don't think I should mention their name, although I think Jojo, Kyle, <laughs> and Reynold wouldn't mind if I mentioned their names. But, and now they're just godly men. You wouldn't even imagine the way they used to be. You know, you just wouldn't know it because they walk with the Lord so tightly and are wonderful pastors and, and just a wonderful declaration of what Christ can do in a life. So, um, so I'm thankful for that. Regardless of what transpires in the future, whether the kids remain in the service or not, it's been a wonderful four decades having them with us. Right. So we'll see what the Lord has in store in the future. Let's turn together to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. This is going to be one of the texts that we'll be, I'll be sharing from this morning. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, and then also 9 and 10. Let's all rise for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a, any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too may not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. Now look at verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words penned by the Apostle Paul and how they have tremendous meaning to us today. May these words and also the other pieces, all the ports of Scripture, that we look at this morning, may it speak directly into our lives or at least allow us to see how other people may be influenced by what is going on via these texts. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations that are upon my heart be acceptable in your sight. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Please be seated. I do have one other announcement. I wanted to say this just before I started preaching. Uh, as of today, actually date-wise as of today, uh, Ian and Chi Nagata are parents. Newborn baby, Irina Joy Nagata. 
born on 414, which is kind of like yesterday for them but to, and today for us, at 4.15 a.m. She weighed three pounds, three, no, not three pounds, 3.582 kilograms, which is almost eight pounds. 7.896952 pounds. Aren't those apps wonderful? You tr put it in kilograms and it comes out in pounds. I didn't, I didn't know what 3.58 kilograms looked like, so I thought I'd better convert it to pounds. So the reason why I share this is we don't share every birth on the screen, but this is really our first missionary baby born in the field. So, and I think that's a, that's a, a hallmark and milestone day in the life of our church. We're a missionary that we've sent out started a family in the country in which they're serving. So I thought that was a real blessing. So congratulations to uh, Carl and Lorna Nagata, who are in the sanctuary today, I think, as they are new, brand new grandparents. I'm surprised they're not on an airplane right now. I would be probably. <laughs> I think they're gonna wait a little while till they settle down and they're gonna go to Japan to visit their brand new grandbaby. Okay, this morning, instead of sharing a Palm Sunday sir, a message, and I'm glad Pastor Rocky talked about it a little bit. I'm going to share three devotional thoughts. Uh, these are devotionals that are more pastoral in nature than expositional. So, uh, so that's sort of what the Lord prompted me to do in uh, the last, one of the last three messages that I preach here at Evergreen SGV. Let's begin, I'm going to begin by talking about bearing another's burden. Bearing someone else's burden. Now this is a brief continuation of the March 24th message that had to do with pro-life, all right? And I thought there's something I better talk about, devotionally speaking, regarding that particular message and what was shared. In Galatians chapter six, that one, the passage that we read, it says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So when we bear somebody else's burden, when we take it on and help them with it, we are fulfilling something Jesus wants us to do. Now, verse, look at verse 9. That was verse 2. Verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So part of bearing somebody's burden in the context of that verse is we're going to do good for somebody, and we're going to be doing good when we help somebody. Now, bear in mind, the word burden here is a large monumental burden that people would have a hard time carrying by themselves. Later on in chapter 6, it says, you should bear your own burden. And that's a different word for burden. And it's a smaller burden. Some burdens people are supposed to carry on their own. But there are others that are much larger that requires assistance. And that's what Paul is teaching here in Galatians. Verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Paul's saying, look, if God gives us an opportunity, and that's important, we have an opportunity to help somebody, to share in their burden, then we should do so. And especially, Paul says, if there's somebody in the local family, the household of faith, even more so, we should feel moved to help them out if they have an overwhelming burden confronting them. So that's what Paul is teaching. And he's exhorting us to look for those kinds of opportunities. Now, one of the opportunities that we may have the, the privilege of being able to share with somebody is an unwed pregnancy. Now, people have choices when they have an unwed pregnancy. Some people choose the route of abortion, and that's what we talked about uh, two weeks ago. Others make a choice after encouragement, especially within the body of Christ, 
to go through with the birth, and they may need some assistance. Turn to James chapter 4, a very practical letter. James chapter 4, look at verse 17. James wrote, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So here's a particular sin that may not be listed in categories of sin in the Scripture, but if there's something we know that we should be doing, something good that we should be doing, and we refrain from doing it for whatever reason, that possibly could be considered sin. Because you have the opportunity and the means to do something good for someone, and you withhold it, that could be considered sin. So that's something else to bear in mind. Now, we have always counseled women in our church who, have, who, if you were to have an unplanned pregnancy, to deliver the child full term rather than abort them, which would be a sin. So that's always been the counsel of our church. I have always felt uncomfortable to tell a woman that she should go through with her pregnancy because abortion is a sin without offering some sort of assistance if she makes a choice for life. I have always had issues with those who picketed abortion clinics and called out women who were entering the building without offering assistance or other options. And that's why I really love the, uh, the Ministry of Options, the Women's Care Center, because they counsel women, they give them options, and they actually come alongside of them if they go through with an unwed pregnancy or an unwanted pregnancy. For instance, if we were to counsel couples to stay in their marriages rather than divorce, we should be willing and available to assist them as they strive to heal a brokenness in their marriage. Therefore, if one of the women in our church family makes a decision to have their baby based upon our pro-life position and counsel, we have tried to make a commitment to walk with them in their journey of pregnancy. I don't believe it is Christ-like to recommend giving birth and then walking away from the one who, is, who has made or is making a very difficult and courageous choice. It's not easy to go through with an unplanned, unwed pregnancy. And we have always been prepared to assist the unwed mother in our church family, the household of faith, emotionally, spiritually, practically, and financially. And as you know, you contribute to the fellowship fund. We've always reserved a, a large portion of the fellowship fund in case we need to walk with one of the women in our church in this particular area so we can help them financially. So sometimes they get abandoned by all those who they would normally turn to for help, even family. Now we have done this more than once in 42 years of ministry. And I thought we should just disclose this to you. Not the names or the, or the people involved, but that the fact that it has happened. My wife, Rain, has been in the delivery room for two of those births. Right? So these again were, were girls who found themselves pregnant, not married, made a choice for life, and we walked beside them. And Rain was, was in two delivery rooms. One of the, one of the stories is kind of interesting because Rain at that time was working at San Gabriel Christian School as a PE teacher of lower division. So as was her case, you know, you all dress appropriately for your, for your um, job. While her dress was shorts, 
uh, polo shirt, a whistle, and a, and a cap, a visor, okay, and a clipboard. So she got the call, and she had to shoot off to the hospital to help the mom and go into the, into the um, delivery room as her coach. So she shows up in shorts, <laughs> polo shirt, didn't take the whistle off, still had the visor and her clipboard. And she goes in and says something like, I'm her coach. <laughs> and I'm sure the people thought, boy, this woman is taking this job seriously. <laughs> I just, it was so funny when I found that out when she got home, uh, how she was a tech, she was, I mean, she was, I mean, she didn't think about it. She just wanted to be there for this teenage girl. Well, the first time it happened, I then personally delivered the baby to their adoptive parents in Orange County from Los Angeles area to Orange County. That was my most stressful drive I've ever taken in my life. I had a newborn baby in a car seat in the back seat of my car, and I was driving at least 45 minutes to deliver the baby. And I was so frightful of getting into some sort of accident with a brand new baby that I, I felt like I was the stork and I didn't want to drop the baby. Some of you know, I have no idea what a stork means. Adults explain it to your kids when they say, what's Pastor Corey talking about a stork and babies? All right. So maybe you've got to explain to some of the adults too. All right. But it was stressful. After that, I decided I'm not going to do that ever again. And every other time we helped, we, we brought the adoptive parents either to the hospital or to a location and made a transfer where I didn't have to drive. And I, we have been personally present on four adoptive exchanges of this nature. And it's really a blessing to see this. It's heart-wrenching and heartbreaking for the, for the mom, and, but it's a joyful time for the adoptive parents. It's really bittersweet. But we know that this is what God's design is and destiny for the child. So ultimately, everybody rejoices. Now, the motto of our church is love God, love others, make a difference. And that's what we should genuinely try to do. Love God by doing his will, but also loving others who are attempting to do his will. And sometimes doing his will is very difficult. And we should never abandon people who are trying to do God's will. And so I think the Lord has, has really blessed those, those, those circumstances. I even got to participate in the wedding of one of those. I officiated the wedding of one of those little babies that finally grew up and was wed. God is good. Now I'm gonna give a corollary pastoral consult this morning. Never done this from the pulpit, I've done it privately. What do you do if you are a couple and you are thinking about in vitro fertilization? And this topic is actually associated with a pro-life message. So what happens if you're in a position, can't have children, and now medical science offers you the opportunity of an IVF, an in vitro fertilization. If you don't know what that is, I'm going to let you look it up. All right. Um, nah, I better explain it. All right. I'm going to use medical terminology. All right. It's fertilization by mixing sperm with eggs surgically. Re an egg surgically removed from the from the ovary of a female, 
followed by a uterine implantation of one or more of the resulting fertilized eggs. So basically you create babies outside the womb and, the, and you basically store the babies. All right. They call that a zygote or a fertilized egg. It's really a baby because uh, conception has taken place. Now, so there are some ethical dilemmas that can arise from that, the decision to undergo in vitro fertilization. So this would be my pastoral counsel to you. And then you need to decide in the presence of God and with the counsel of others what you determine is the best course of action for you and your spouse. First of all, ask the Lord if it's his will for you to have children. Don't just assume that you're supposed to have children. Now, the Bible does talk about having children in marriage, but if you are having difficulty conceiving, don't assume that that's God's will is for you to go through IVF. Ask the Lord if it's his will for you to have children. We have couples in our church that are childless, and they have accepted it, and they have lived a life that has been very fruitful, in part because God uses them as a kidless couple. Secondly, if you determine that that's not going to be the course of your life, and you feel good about that in the sight of God, then next, seriously consider adoption. Adoption is, is, is abundant in our church. It's been such a blessing. And uh, adoption is a course of action you can take because there are many children who are in desperate need of a loving Christian family. So consider adoption as your second option. Then if you feel like it's not adoption and the Lord wants you to pursue having a biological child, then this is the counsel I'm going to give to you to avoid a ethical dilemma. Fertilize only the number of eggs which corresponds to the number of children you believe God desires in your life or that you desire. So if you desire to have three children, only fertilize three eggs. So that's all you have you're gonna get counseled differently from the medical field. And therein lies the ethical dilemma, which I'll get to in a moment. Storing extra babies right, is an ethical dilemma in and of itself. I don't know if it's sin, but especially if the initial implantation is successful and you have these stored babies, what to do with these babies is, can be an ethical issue if you're done having children and you still have stored babies. Now, I know this happens because I had a couple come to me and say, you know, we're thinking about in vitro fertilization. We don't have any kids. And a friend of ours, couple came and said, would you please adopt our stored babies? Because they had a multitude of babies fertilized, and then they just applied so many, they had their babies, and now they had babies stored. They were the backup babies. And a baby in storage has a shelf life. That's an ethical problem, if you know that going in. Unless you decide to have all of them at once. And so they said, what should we do? You know, we're in a dilemma here because we, wanna, we don't want these babies to die 
and yet we're not sure we should be, we should be implanting their baby into the womb of the, of the wife. I won't tell you the outcome of the council, but that displayed the issue very, very vividly. Then implant only the number of fertilized eggs or babies that you are willing to carry full term. So if you're only willing to carry one child full term, only implant one child. And what the counsel you may receive is you need to plant three or four in case they don't take. But if they all take, are you willing to have four babies at one, in one birth? And what they, if you say no, what they will do is they will remove the number you don't want, and that is abortion. See the ethical dilemma? So if you decide to go the IVF route, in vitro fertilization, count the cost. And the, and the medical world, and they're doing the best that they can, will say, well, the best way, the most economical way to do this is fertilize a whole bunch of eggs and implant a whole bunch. If you go to them and say, I only want one baby, I just fertilize one egg, implant just one egg, they'll say, the success rate for that is not real high. We don't suggest you do it that way. That's probably what you're going to hear. But doing it the other way sets up ethical dilemmas for you as a believer if you are pro-life. So that's the counsel I give to couples. And I thought before I leave, I'm going to give this counsel to the entire church. Because medical science is such today. I mean, it's a miracle that they can do this. But it does not surpass the miracle of God creating life to begin with. And his rules and regulations, his will regarding how you treat life. So that's the counsel. Second devotional thought. Holiness into happiness. Holiness into happiness. Now, you've, always, you've heard me say this more than once. God is more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. You remember that? In my benediction, I say at the end, your holiness, not your happiness. I talk about holiness, not happiness. Now, we have to be careful about the priority of the pursuit of happiness in our lives. We have to be very careful where the pursuit of happiness is in our lives. What priority level? See, Americans have the pursuit of happiness in their DNA. Uh, did, did you have to memorize the Declaration of Independence? At least the beginning part of it? What does it say? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's one of the phrases, one of the best-known phrases from the Declaration of Independence. And the founding fathers, many of who were Christians, were very, very serious about this phrase. The pursuit of happiness. And so it's in our DNA. I think Americans are all about the pursuit of happiness. And understandably so. It's been, the, it's been in our nation since its inception. Well, let me make a statement about this. God wants us to be happy. God is not a cosmic killjoy. Some people say, oh, if I become a, all the do's and don'ts, man, I, I'm going to practically be a nun or a monk. That's not what God wants. By the way, monks and nuns who are called to that are extremely happy, if you're called to that. God wants us to be happy. God wants his people to be joyful. When we come in, we're supposed to sing for joy. Jesus' first sermon recorded in Matthew was called the Sermon on the Mount. He begins his sermon. This is the first sermon he preaches, you know, Sermon on the Mount. He begins it with the subject of happiness. 
Turn to Matthew chapter five. You know, Jesus wants us to be happy. I think that's why he started the, the very first sermon recorded in Matthew with blessed, which means happy or joyful. Verse one, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now the word blessed again can be translated happy or joyful. Jesus wants us to be happy. Happiness, our happiness is important to God. But let's look in the, in the sermon, how do you achieve happiness? Being poor in spirit. It's all about being, more, being mournful, being gentle, hungry and thirsty and after righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker, being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Those are the things which make us happy. Those are the things that will lead us into a joyful life. It's not the list most Americans would come up with. It's not the list I would come up with. Uh, off the cuff, if they'd say, well, make a list of what makes people happy. I, this is what I would write. Blessed are those who have a lot of money. Blessed are those who are well-liked. Blessed are those who get a good education at the right institution. Blessed are those who marry the perfect partner. Or if that were the case, no one would be married. Blessed are those that have perfect children. Blessed are those who have a great, great career. Blessed are those who are athletic. Blessed are those who have a love full of faithful friends. But that's not what God says. That could be our list, but that wasn't God's list. And we know it because Jesus preached it. Jesus wants us to be happy but the pursuit of happiness can't keep us apart from the pursuit of holiness because the pursuit of happiness on its own only leads to disappointment. I'm gonna refer you to the book of Ecclesiastes where the pursuit there has to do with money, has to do with uh, prestige, has to do with possessions, has to do with power. And he says all that, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is vanity or futility. Now those things God, I think, desires us to have. He desires us to have faithful friends, but the pursuit of that for the sake of joy is not necessarily what God desires. We pursue Him and Him hard, and as we pursue God hard and His holiness and His righteousness and try to take that upon ourselves, that's when we'll experience the joy that Jesus speaks about in the Gospel of John. 
Let me summarize how you can do this in one verse of scripture. Matthew 6, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are all these things? Well, normally it's the things that make people happy. But they get added to us if we seek God's kingdom first. For instance, in marriage, people exit their marriage because they are not happy. And they believe God wants them to be happy. I've actually heard this more than once. I'm miserable in my marriage. And I can't see God wanting me miserable. So I think I'm going to get a divorce. See, that's when I can say God's not interested in your happiness there. He's interested in your holiness. And as you pursue holiness and righteousness in your marriage, that's when you'll experience joy. In fact, God wants us to persevere in our marriages because it's the righteous thing to do which will ultimately lead to joy. I always pray for people. I hope you can experience the joy that people who have been married 50, 60, 70 years eventually enjoy. And I realize there can be some extenuating circumstances, but they are the few and not the norm. Your college or your career, you're in college, or you just started a brand new career, and things are difficult. You know, when you start a brand new job, it is not going to be easy. You've got so many things to learn all at once. It's not easy. It will get easier. You're not happy with your college or your college life or your new career. It's not what you thought it was going to be. You know, you go to college, you have all these expectations, and then you realize, man, college can be a drag because i got to study there too. And you got nobody looking over your shoulder saying, hey, you, are you studying? You are on your own. You're thinking about quitting because you're not happy at your college of choice and in your brand new career. See, God doesn't have you in college or in a brand new career to make you happy, but to refine you in your holiness and to build your character. You may eventually change colleges. You may pursue a different career path, but not simply because you're not happy in it. Because God's not done with you in the trials and tribulations that are happening in your newfound career or the college of your choice. Here's a simple principle. Whenever you leave a job or some long-term commitment other than marriage, the pull should always be greater than the push. The pull should always be greater than the push. Dr. Duller had that push-me-pull-me animal. Two heads, two front feet. And well, they, call, they call the animal push-me-pull-me. Look it up, right? It looks like a, 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 a yama or something. Two-headed animal. And they couldn't decide where to go. Push me or pull me. So you know what the net result was for that animal? They never moved. They just stood in the same place all the time. When you're in life, when you're in college, when you have a career, when you're in ministry, there may be a push to get out. Make sure the push isn't greater than the pull. It's what God wants you to do next as opposed to what you don't want to do now. So always remember, the pull should be greater than the push. And when we live simply because we're pushed and we're not being pulled by God in a direction, sometimes there's unfinished business 
and that which we're being pushed away from. So that's just a principle to kind of salt away in the back of your mind. When you get to a point where, I want to leave this thing. Well, is there a pull? Is God calling you to something? Or is it just because you're being pushed? Third devotional thought. Born into heaven. Born into heaven. I'm going to share a devotional thought about miscarriages. So it's vaguely related to the first, first devotional. Miscarriage is a natural birth of a child before he or she can survive independently. That's a miscarriage. Miscarriage is the natural birth of a child. It's, it's, it's not an abortion, which is unnatural and forced. It's a natural birth. Miscarriage occur normally within the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. First 12. Miscarriage occur approximately one out of four pregnancies. So 25% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. It is estimated by some researchers that because not every woman who is pregnant knows she's pregnant, and not every woman who experiences a miscarriage even knows she has, it is really estimated that almost 50% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. That's one out of two. That is a lot. Again, they don't know the precise number. Could be less. But what they can document is one out of four. Roughly one out of four. Now, miscarriages normally are oftentimes happen because of abnormalities in the baby. So God has his own way of dealing with babies who would have a difficult or impossible time surviving after birth. There's already a mechanism in place by the creative design of God after the fall in the Garden of Eden. Most of the time, God takes away the opportunity to make a pro-life decision about a baby that, was, that is going to have tremendous physical challenges. So that's my theological perspective. Right? Remember this. Pain and suffering is removed in heaven. Now, what I'm going to say next is never to be t- determined as a license to kill a baby or to remove you from a pregnant situation. That will be outside the framework of God. And you'll understand why I say this as I continue. Now the remainder of the message this morning is for those who have experienced the pain of miscarriages. You say, well, okay, I can tune Pastor Corey out right now. It'd probably be good to listen because it could become a reality in your life or it could become a reality in the life of somebody you know. And it'll equip you maybe to help a little bit. Not to preach, not to lecture, but to understand, try to understand just a little bit better what's going on. No one knows the pain and suffering except those who have actually had a miscarriage. You can't know it. Especially, you know, you know you're pregnant. You rejoice in your pregnancy. It could be your first child that is going to be born, and you have these incredible expectations about what's going to happen. And then there's a miscarriage. And it is really, really difficult to deal with that. No one will know exactly what to say to you. The closest will be somebody else who has experienced a miscarriage. And even though the baby did not live outside the womb, you are still a mom and a dad. 
to that little baby. So what happens to a baby of a miscarriage? This is the question I get asked. Well, what about my baby? Three things to know about your baby. About all babies in the womb. First, your baby was formed in the image of God and therefore worthy of redemption. So your baby, even 12 weeks old, is worthy of redemption. Genesis 1:27 says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Him, male and female, he created them. So every child, male and female, they're created in the image of God, the Imago Deo, and therefore worthy of redemption. Second thing to know about your baby, your baby did not reach the age of accountability. Your baby did not reach the age of accountability. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7, verses 15 and 16. This is a question not only for babies in the womb, but babies outside the womb who have yet, and little children outside the womb who have yet to confess their faith in Jesus. Verse 15, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For the, before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose king, two kings you dread will be forsaken. Now, this is a verse about the humanity of Messiah who is to come. And even though Jesus never sinned, spoken into this particular verse is, is the idea that a baby or a, or a child needs to reach an age of accountability when they really understand the difference between good and evil. Right? So they, there is a re, age of accountability, but it doesn't say what age that is. Deuteronomy, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39. The context here is judgment. Deuteronomy 139 says, Moreover, your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your sons to this day have no knowledge of good and evil, shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. Again, there is the idea and understanding that children are exempt from judgment until they reach the age of accountability, when they can differentiate between good and evil. It doesn't mean they're not sinners, per se, because we're born as sinners. But there is some sort of age of accountability. And for sure, a baby in the womb has not reached the age of accountability, for sure. Therefore, a baby in the womb is not accountable, and if they were to die in the womb, they go to be with the Lord. Your baby is in heaven. Again, this isn't license to do whatever you please with a baby because they go straight to heaven. No, you pass, you pass, you pass go straight to heaven. That would be a misuse of this text, and that would be heretical. So your baby that was miscarried was born into heaven. His or her first steps were on streets of gold. He or she was never acquainted with pain and suffering of this world. Your baby is with Jesus. And there awaits for you someday a grand reunion in eternity. I'm not sure how you recognize your baby. 
I'm not sure your baby's going to be a baby because I don't think that's going to happen. But I think somehow you'll know. You know, in 42 years of ministry, I never had the privilege and opportunity to share a, a devotional thought like this. And I really should have. Because those of you who have experienced miscarriage, and it could, be a, it could have been a long time ago, and I, I hope that the Lord has brought healing into your heart and into your lives. I hope, I hope you're not, you don't have a sense of guilt about the miscarriage. Sometimes moms feel like, you know, maybe if I took a little better care of myself, it would not have happened. God wants to take all that away from you because it's not your fault. And as you maybe long for your baby or think about your baby, hey, there's going to be a day when you'll be reunited with your baby. That's going to be a glorious day. Our, our, one of my, our grandchildren has been in South Africa in school for like 12, 13. When she comes home, it's going to be glorious. That's only like a three-month de- uh, three uh, departure from, from being with her. And she's, she's our granddaughter. But it's going to be, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. How much more are you probably are looking forward to a reunion someday with your baby who was in heaven? So we're going to have a ministry time this morning. It's going to, it's going to end the service. I'm going to, we're going to, I mean, Christy Chong is going to sing a song entitled A Perfect Way to Start. And it's a song written to those couples who have had a miscarriage. And then after the song is sung, I'm going to have the privilege of praying over couples from here. And you'll be seated. And you may be listening on, on the podcast. And if you do, uh, find on, on the internet a song entitled A Perfect Way to Start by Craig Avons, Avon, or Avon. And then listen to this and then receive the prayer. Now I'm going to ask for God's blessing on your life. Let's join together in prayer. indeed heaven is a perfect way to start but father it has pained some of in our church family to know that wonderful fact has actually happened in their lives father we ask in jesus name that your holy spirit will minister to all those couples that are here this morning and who are listening that have experienced the the pain and agony and suffering of miscarriage those of us who have not experienced this have no idea what that's like but father you do so we pray in Jesus name that you'll have a wonderful ministry to them at this very moment that you will lift from them any sense of guilt that they may have we pray that all the tears that were shed was a ministry to them and that, Father, you have reclaimed every one of those teardrops and have used them for good. Father, we pray for any doubts they may have had about where their baby is and that you will remove them at this moment. Father, we pray that for those couples who have yet to have a child but have had a miscarriage, that you will give them the confidence and the faith to try again and that you would bless them with a child or with children. Remove fear from their lives, Lord, because we are not to live with fear 
but that your perfect love does indeed cast out fear. Father, again, we just have no idea what thoughts go through the minds of those who have experienced a miscarriage. And so for those thoughts, no matter how small, no matter how large they may be, we ask for you to minister and to bless them in the midst of them. And Lord, we pray that you will remove any ungodly beliefs that have entered into their hearts and souls because of a miscarriage, and that you will replace it with your truth. For truth indeed sets us free. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you love us so very much that you don't leave us in desperation. You don't leave us with doubts. You don't leave us with questions that are unanswerable, but you give us the measure of faith necessary to move ahead and live life as you desire. Thank you that you love our church family. That you love every person within our church family. They are all special, wonderfully and beautifully made, no matter how small they are, no matter how old we have grown. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you'll continue to sustain us and give us the opportunity to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Jesus, to be able to come alongside those who have a common experience of suffering and pain and allow us to love one another in such a fashion that the burdens are lifted. Thank you, Father. We thank you now for this moment, this moment in history, this moment of worship. And thank you for how you have touched lives this morning. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.